University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkway. Visit ubc-br.org or at UBCBR on Facebook for more information. Take a look at the book of Nehemiah, chapter 5, verse 1. Some of y'all really missed that video last week since I played another David Bowie song instead. So we're not going to do a long introduction because this is now week ugh, 7 into our Nehemiah series and we should be caught up on the context. But we learned last week is this, the people begin to rebuild the wall and all of a sudden external opposition begins to mount among them, which turns into internal opposition in the form of fear and despair and doubt. This next chapter is equally as difficult. So Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 1. Now, the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and to stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, We've had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard their outcry and these charges... I was very angry. As you can imagine, the work on the wall, the guarding of the workers on the wall, created a tremendous time constraint on those who were involved in the project. And as a result of the wall, workers were unavailable to tend to their crops and to their financial matters. No time to reap a harvest, no time to sell grain. This turned people to borrow money on top of their property, and the loans and begin to find that they have no food for their families. And taking advantage of this moment, interest rates went up, and people were plunged into poverty. Some were forced to sell their children for work, labor, a guaranteed way that their children would actually have foods in their mouth if they were slaves. Some had to sell their property at a fraction of the amount of its value, and then the tax collectors for the king came for their collection. I love how Nehemiah put it best in verse 6 when he said, And I was very angry. The Hebrew word here is chara, which means to burn with anger or rage. When we are doing the work of transforming God's world, we are going to uncover acts and systems of injustice. Let me repeat that. When we are doing the work of transforming God's world, we are going to uncover acts and systems of injustice. 
And the question we must wrestle with as we are navigating this text is, what do we do about it? But maybe a more challenging question for us to consider is, what if we are playing a part in some of the injustices happening in our community and around the world, and we don't even realize it? You know, you have those moments where they just kind of stick with you. And this year, we went to Target the day after Christmas to uh, take advantage of their 75% off on all of their Christmas decoration. That's the penny pincher's way to decorate for the next year. And I I saw one of these parents, and they're in the situation that every every parent dreads. It's a child screaming at the top of their lungs in a store, and you know that everybody's staring at you. Except as I listened closer to what the child was screaming, it was, I want, I want, I want— And the parent turned to their child and said, if you stop screaming, I will buy you this toy before we leave. I wanted to pull that woman to the side and say, Christmas was yesterday. Are you out of your mind? We are a people who want more. This is the root of the injustice that's happening in Nehemiah chapter 5. We are creatures that want more. The more stuff we have, the more stuff we want, so we always want what's bigger and what's better. And that's because we have been properly trained. We are good boys and girls who believe that pursuing bigger and nicer and better and fancier stuff will make us happier. Corporations spend billions of dollars a year to convince you that you need their product and services. Not only will it make your life more convenient, but it will make you more happier. It will make you safer. So we get more. We get more believing it will satisfy us. We get more because we're convinced it will make us more secure and life will be easier. So we get that new flat screen, that latest fashion, the newest cars, the newest gadgets, the best clothes for our kids, on and on and on. We check it off the list. We create this vicious cycle within our lives of all too easy justifying the desire for more. Is there a more difficult cycle to step out of than the cycle of more in our lives? I'm a fan of most sports, um, and there are very few players and teams that I dislike, but there is no doubt in my mind that there is one team that I will never, ever pull for and that is the Dallas Cowboys. Now, the rest of my peers jumped on the bandwagon in the 1990s of the Emmitt Smith and the Aikman and Michael Irving days. Just go ahead and throw in there the name Jerry Jones, and you'll find all the reasons why I never want to pull for the Cowboys. But then a strange thing happened as you think of America's team. Beyond the fact that they have this this huge monstrosity of a screen, 75, two feet tall and 160 foot wide HD TV that could like give children in Africa food for a lifetime. Do you know how they got their stadium and the late, latest stadium that they're in? In 2009, when the Cowboys finalized their plans to demolish their old Texas stadium in Irvine, Texas, uh, they did a few backdoor deals in order to get this new facility uh, in Arlington, Texas. And with the help of the mayor at the time, the Cowboys organized uh, the acquirement of 162 properties, 100, approximately 134 acres. And when the property owners refused to move out of their businesses and homes that they had lived in and worked at for generations, all of a sudden the city of Arlington started using eminent domain to push them out of their homes. 
But this isn't the first time that Arlington's ever done this. In 1991, when the Texas Rangers wanted to build their new facility that they've now demolished and built a new one, they did the same thing, pushing out people in 13 acres of property. See, Arlington, Texas, and Texas Rangers and the Cowboys got what they want no matter who had to suffer as a result. When we think about the consumerism of our culture, the desire to want more and more often, more often than not, we don't think about who it affects. Think about, just for a second, in your pocket or in your purse right now is a smartphone. And then that smartphone is a a rare element that is used in every single smartphone, and the primary place of production of this element is in the Congo. Oftentimes it is the government or rebel organizations that are mining this and forcing people into labor in order for us to have this element that goes into all of our cell phones. We live in a Western civilization of consumption, and so that desires that there's cheap labor market, environmental pollution, forest degradation, and species are threatened. In 2012, the International Labor Organization released a report stating that 168 million children around the world are engaged in child labor. That number accounts for 11% of the world's population of children. Children are forced to commit commercial acts of of sex and forced labor and domestic servitude, all so that sometimes we can get the products that we use as a convenient each and every day. You see, wanting more, it affects others. Our desire for having so much more oftentimes is aiding economic injustice in our towns, in our country, and around the world. And while there are tremendous economic injustices that happen around us each and every day, oftentimes we fail to see those things. Specifically, there is 1.2 billion people in the world's population that use about, uh, about $1 a day in order to survive. 1.8% of the population lives on less than $2 a day. And yet we desire more and more. Consumerism affects the world. The minority of the world's population, 17%, consume 80% of the world's resources. Experts have said that if everyone else in the world consumed things at the rate as Americans, it would take five Earths to produce the amount we consume on a given day. 800 million people go to bed hungry every single night. 30 to 60,000 die each day to hunger alone. The story is the same when it comes to necessities of water and housing and education. We have an increase of accumulation of power and wealth in which 358 billionaires own more than 170 countries of the world. Think about that for just a second. 300 people have more to themselves than 170 of the poorest countries in the world. Nehemiah's narrative is not an ancient story. It's a modern-day tale at work in Baton Rouge, in the United States, and around the world. And whether we want to admit it or not, our spending habits, the corporations we support, the politicians we put in office, and the way that we live our lives oftentimes is weaving its modern-day kin. Frederick Douglass wrote, where justice is denied, where poverty is enforced, where ignorance prevails, and where any one class is made to feel that society is organized conspiracy to oppress, to rob, and to grade them, neither person nor property will be safe. Now, some might be thinking in this space, well, thank you, Andy. 
Thank you for sharing your social justice and political perspectives, but God is not in the business of such things. Do you know why Israel found themselves in exile in the first place while they're coming back to Jerusalem to rebuild it? According to the prophets, beginning in Isaiah through Malachi, the people had forsaken God, not for their religious practices, but because of their greed and their power and their wealth at the cost of the well-being of their neighbor. Maybe Jesus was being facetious or metaphorical when he said, I've come to preach good news to the poor, to recover sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, and to set the prisoner free. Maybe he didn't mean it when he said, blessed are the poor and woe to the rich. You see, God is not set apart from all things that we deem to be religious because God is in all things, because God created all things. Yes, God cares about the exploitation of the poor. Yes, God cares about corrupt business practices. Yes, God cares about consumption of more and more when some others just need a little bit. Yes, God cares about economic injustice because it is spiritual injustice. God knows who we are, where we are, and what we are doing. Yet rather than abusing this power of God's own end, God committed to steadfast love, to righteousness, to justice, to reconciling the world to God's self. God brings justice to those who are exploited. As one author put it, social injustice is not merely a horizontal violation of our fellow humans. It's a primary vertical violation to God by wrongdoing God's creation, others made in the image of God. In other words, we tend to interpret this narrative of Nehemiah as social justice, but really the passage shows us that we cannot separate the social and the spiritual. Our relationship with God reflects our relationship with how we treat our fellow human beings. Economic injustice is spiritual injustice. And this is what it says in verse 7. I pondered with them in my mind and then accused the nobles and the officials. I told them, you are charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could not find anything to say. So I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers... And men are also lending people to the money and grain. But let's stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves, and their houses, and also the interest we are charging them, 1%, the money, the grain, new wine, and olive oil. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. There's great power in this moment. Even for Nehemiah, who realizes that he has been charging people an unfair interest that they cannot manage. This is a moment of, of repentance and transformation and reconciliation. For us to repent and for God to forgive, it's not just wiping clean what we do. No, reconciliation of God is inviting us into something better into the economy of God. When we live in the way that God desires for us, when we choose to live lives that reflect Jesus, 
we are choosing to live into the economy of God. It's an economy of God where we choose to not engage in acts that will lead to injustice for others, no matter how small or no matter how severe. You cannot separate the way of God from the economy of God. But what does that practically look like? First, to live in the economy of God is to be aware of the conscious economic injustice that take place in our town, in our state, in our country, in our globe. Have you ever stopped and considered where you get your food from? Where the products you buy, where they came from, how it was made, who made those products? Who picked that cotton for my shirt? Who cut the sugar cane that's mixed in my pumpkin spice latte? Are you aware of the companies that you buy from that might be exploiting other people for their own gain, for better profit margins? Does it matter of the products we buy and support these acts of injustice? Some of the products that we are wearing this morning or ate for breakfast uh, this morning come from organizations like Walmart and Victoria's Secret and H&M and Gap and Hanes, all companies who have been convicted and shown that they are exploiting people in third world countries. Some of these companies subcontract with factory workers and force them to work 19-hour days. That's 95 to 110 hours a week at the pay of 40 cents per day. That's $20 per month. So consider that 12-year-old girl who sleeps on a plastic piece on the ground and works awful hours to pick cotton at an accelerated rate as we slip on to those comfy Hanes or Victoria's Secret underwear. Consider that little boy who has machete cuts all over his body because he didn't work fast enough as he's picking those cocoa beans that are being purchased by American companies. You see, people who live in the economy of God are aware and conscious of the forms of economic injustice. The things that we take for granted most days, the access to adequate housing and social services and childcare and adult daycare and education and healthcare and legal services and financial services and transportation, so many don't receive these things. There's an ever-increasing divide between our country and other countries, our people within our own community. Consider that it matters. You and I have the responsibility to not l just listen but to watch and act on the things we see in this world. When we are conscious of injustice, then we choose not to buy products from companies that exploit children, but we choose to do what is right for the kingdom of God and for our fellow human beings. But it's not enough just to be aware of these things. God desires for us to actively pursue against injustice in our world. You might be thinking, okay, well, what, what campaign do I need to support what organization do I need to give to? What can I do? How can I really make a difference? This is the invitation of Nehemiah. It's an invitation to act. And there's something simplistically profound that we can do each day, but the problem is it goes so against the grain of us as, as Americans. It's so woven within our DNA that oftentimes something so simple seems so difficult. But what is it? One of the things you and I can do each day is to ask for and only use our daily bread. When asked how to pray, Jesus taught the disciples to ask for their daily bread. When the Hebrew people begged God to provide for them as they were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, what did God give them? Daily God gave them manna. 
We've been told that stockpiling our pantries, that savings accounts and clothes after clothes and jewelry after jewelry and toys upon toys, in reality, we don't need all these things. In the economy of God, all we need is what we need for today. And then the next day, we just often have gotten so accustomed to consuming not just our daily bread, but our monthly and yearly and decade-long amounts of bread. For a country that adds up to the consumption of 80% of the world's resources, imagine what would happen if the 264 million proclaiming Christians in America begin to just consume their daily bread. But that's not the only thing we can do. If we want to have an impact and and consuming only our daily bread, that means also we're invited to do something really difficult, but it's so centered within the message of Jesus, and that is to share our resources with others. How many times in the gospel did Jesus call someone to give away their excess to those who were in need? As the church began to take form and live out the way of Jesus in the book of Acts, we learned that they did this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. Everyone was filled with all the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All believers were together and had everything in common. They sold their property and possessions and gave to anyone who was in need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And I love the end of this. And their Lord added to their number daily those being saved. It's not a coincidence that when the people of God live in the economy of God, fighting against injustices, that they begin to share their resources with other people who are in need. So what should we do? Should we stop consuming? Should we stop simply finding the things that we, we take day after day? What can we do in order to make an impact? What if we did the simple things of going through all the excess of clothes? We have so many clothes, and we actually gave them to people who are in need or organizations who give them to people who are in need. What if we started fasting one meal a week, and with the money we would have spent for lunch or dinner, we take that money and we give it to an organization who's making an impact in our community? What if that lady who's asking for money on the side of the road, we actually gave her the money? instead of assuming that she's going to use it for things that she shouldn't? What if at Christmas time we begin to teach and form our children, not buying them vast number of gifts, but begin to ask them to shop for gifts to give to other children who are in need at Christmas time? These are just ways that we can share our resources. And the last thing I want us to see from this text this morning is this. For every United Way, for every Red Cross, for every thousands of nonprofits in the world, there is an organization that is greater and has a greater impact and has been around for much longer. It's called the Kingdom of God. And we are called to invest in the Kingdom of God. The Kingdom is eternal and global. It's a local organization expressed through the church. The Kingdom of God is this, this movement by which we are seeking justice in this world, seeking to give other people the excess of the resources we have. The Kingdom finds itself in the local expression of the church. And if we believe in the church, if we believe in these things, then we share our resources and our time and our strength for what matters. I don't want you to confuse this and think that Andy's just preaching a sermon saying you need to give your tithes to UBC. I believe in what we're doing here. 
And not only are we doing good work here, but we are also partnering with organizations like the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship that are fighting against human trafficking, unfair labor conditions and wages, hunger, and economic development in third world countries. We use our resources to give to our partners so they can do the work of the world. In the economy of God, we're called to invest in the work of God. As we pursue Jesus, it's not an invitation to just be aware or conscious of these things, but to actively pursue economic justice in our world. As a great Desmond Tutu once said, I don't preach a social gospel. I preach the gospel, period. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is concerned with the whole person. When people are hungry, Jesus didn't say, now that seems political or maybe that seems social. He said, I will feed you because good news to a hungry person is bread.